Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. The world needs a lot of very smart people finding a way forward for humanity without the carnage and waste of war. In a moment, I'll be speaking to Jamila Rakib of the Albert Einstein Institution about nonviolent strategic planning. But before that, we'll have installation number three of my visits with Myron Buckholz called History and Our Best Future, also on the topic of war. Myron retired last year from decades of teaching history, and I'm so pleased that he's consented to share with our Spirit in Action listeners, drawing on his broad view of history and critical thinking. I know you, Myron, of course, as a peace activist. We stand together each month saying war is not the answer. But do you ever think that it's actually a good idea to go to war? When I would talk to my students about war, I use the quote that all wars are defensive. Historically, there's, I think, a little-known fact that the Kellogg-Briand Pact outlawed war in 1920, post-World War I. The world had seen war and got together and outlawed it. Unfortunately, like many laws, there was a loophole, and this loophole allowed for defense. So what have we seen happen? Post-World War I, the rationale for wars has always been defense. Hitler attacked Poland to defend Germany from Russia. We attacked Vietnam to defend against communism. And, of course, the war in Iraq was to defend against terror. Presently, the justification for war is to protect Americans. All of this so-called protection is making us more scared and clearly less safe. I have heard many times the argument for following what the framers wanted. Well, the framers called it the Department of War. Since it was changed in 1947 to defense, we have been on attack somewhere constantly. The NFL brags about broadcasting to our troops in 175 countries. There's only just short of 200 countries in the world. Our military footprint has become much too large. We are spending billions to modernize our nuclear arsenal, and plans are in place to build 12 new nuclear subs that can carry 24 nuclear missiles at a cost of 6 to $8 billion per boat. Each one of these boats would have the nuclear power to destroy the world. So your original question, is it a good idea to go to war? Presently, in the modern sense, never. I notice the disclaimer, the condition there, in the modern sense, never. What about up through and including World War II? 
One of the greatest arguments about World War II is that uh, Gandhi's hunger strike isn't going to stop the Wehrmacht, and that is true. Unfortunately, World War II, being what I would consider, quote, a good war, unquote, has been used to frame every other conflict since. And one of the things I want to point out to my students and to everybody is that we were late and last in getting involved in World War II. We clearly saw what was going on. There was no mistaking it. And support for the war remained very high, over 80%, through all three and a half years. In other words, the war was not a lie. It is difficult, but we must come to grips with the fact that our wars since World War II have been fought very much on false pretenses and have not made the world safer. In 1967, Martin Luther King gave the very famous, and I think his best speech personally, is beyond Vietnam speech, given one year to the day before he was assassinated, where he correctly laid out the fact that war is connected to poverty, connected to racism, and it needs to be resisted because our modern wars have been fought under false pretenses. And it has been hurting us morally, socially, financially, all across our collective society. Thanks, Myron. I've got a link to Myron Buckholz on NordenSpiritRadio.org, folks. But now on to Jamila Rakib, the executive director of the Albert Einstein Institution. She was born in Afghanistan, a refugee to the USA at age four. Jean Sharp, founder and senior scholar behind the organization, groomed Jamila to take over the lead in their work in promoting research, policy studies, and education on the strategic uses of nonviolent struggle in the face of dictatorship, war, genocide, and oppression. Jamila Rakib joins us by phone from Boston, Massachusetts. Jamila, thanks so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, and it's so briefly that you've landed on the earth before you get in the air. Where are you headed to tomorrow? Well, I'm actually going to Los Angeles, where I'll be speaking at the Afghan American Conference. It's the second year that they're doing this. It's a group of nearly 400 young Afghan Americans coming from all over the country to talk about how to empower the Afghan community. Of course, I'm Afghan American myself, so I've been preparing my notes for the talk, and it's just really exciting to be part of such an initiative because it brings together two of my favorite topics, which is, you know, Afghanistan and also social and political empowerment. So that's what I'm doing in the next couple of days. And you've just come back from Europe. Is this just the normal role of a person working with the Albert Einstein Institution? Well, I really don't know what's the normal role, but I think it's just an indication of just the massive interest in this topic, which means that we're very much in demand because the work is very unique and there are many people that are learning about it and that are inviting us to take part in conferences or in meetings in order to explore nonviolent resistance and to try to understand it. So that brings us to you know many different events around the world. You've already mentioned, of course, Jamila, you're from Afghanistan originally. When did you leave Afghanistan, get here? I just want you to sketch out a bit the path that led you to be the executive director of the Albert Einstein Institution. Yeah, it's been quite a path, though it's not one that I planned or anything like that. Wish I could take credit for it. In some ways, you know, that path started in Afghanistan with the Soviet invasion when I was very young, when I was just, in fact, a few months old. 
and we stayed there for a few years and then my family immigrated to the U.S. as refugees where we've lived ever since. And growing up, I thought a lot about war and conflict and violence and oppression and really tried to understand the causes of war and felt very much that war was terrible, but also oppression was also very, very terrible and that people needed an effective way to fight against it. For that reason, I really like many people, justified violence for good purposes, for important purposes, and, you know, to defend people, to defend countries. And so I sort of had that thinking until I found the work of the Albert Einstein Institution and the writings of Jean Sharp, and I applied for a position here and was very fortunate to get the job, and that was in 2002. So I've been with the institution for now almost 14 years. So I've known Gene Sharp. I actually met him in the 1980s when I was still in Milwaukee. Heard him speak, was inspired by his collecting of this information, how you can do the methods of and examples of nonviolent resistance over centuries, over millennia, in fact. You said, of course, that you come from Afghanistan. Are some of those examples from Afghanistan? One of my favorite examples is the Khudayi Khidmatgar movement that took place in the frontier, so basically the border area between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and beginning in the 1920s and ended as a sort of contemporary movement of the Afghandi, of Indian independence movement. It was actually a component of the Indian independence movement, but that they actually merged quite independently. And it's just such an incredible case. I'm actually writing about it right now because I've been greatly inspired by it, but not just because, you know, the example is from the region that I was born in, but because I think it holds massive lessons for all of us. This is the movement started by a man named Bacha Khan, also called Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan. He was a sort of a small landowner in that region, and he recognized that the British presence in the area was very harmful to their society and that they you know, wanted to free themselves of the British control, but also recognized something extremely important, which was that their oppression was only possible because they were weak and because there were problems within their own society and that that actually facilitated their oppression so that there needed to be this sort of prerequisite stage of reform and education and capacity building and institution building before they were to confront the power of the British. I just find this so incredibly progressive and brilliant and I think it just dispels so many of the misconceptions people have about the region, you know, that people are somehow inherently violent or that they can't self-govern, they're not disciplined or not organized. But here was a movement that emerged from, you know, a large group of them were illiterate. These were Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs working together. There were women involved, children involved. They became a nonviolent army of more than 100,000 people in what's essentially a very rural area, extremely disciplined. They had a pledge of refusing to use violence, and they used all kinds of symbolic methods and protest, but also very powerful types of non-cooperation with British institutions. They set up their own courts. I mean, it's just incredible, and I just feel so proud to know about this case, and I always am quite saddened that people in the region don't know it. It's a powerful example for all of us. I'm going to apologize in advance for my pronunciation. I learned the name is Bacha Khan. Yes, that's right. My accent probably isn't right, but... No, it sounds fine. <laughs> oh, thank you. Sounds thank quite you. good. 
I've learned of this group before and was very impressed by what I heard. And I hope there's actually a documentary movie coming out from someone that I would love to interview about it. She's been working toward it for quite a while. But the question is, what happened to them? Because we don't know of them. I guess that area has been through so many upheavals in the interim. Has their influence continued? Well, I think just as is the case with Khan and the Khudayshat Matkar movement, this is a problem in all of our societies around the world where many of these really powerful examples of nonviolent resistance are neglected and either they're kind of glorified and they become a symbol and they kind of lose meaning and they lose the power of what they did. And the whole movement of hundreds of thousands or a hundred thousand people is reduced to a single individual that then, you know, we should respect but not really learn about. This is kind of the problem with Khan in the region and that he's still very much respected. I mean, people go and pay respect at his tomb. However, are children learning about what actually happened? That I'm not sure about. And I think that's the case everywhere in the world. I mean, I just I just came from Norway and I think Norway has also the other for me what's a really inspiring example of nonviolent resistance that many people don't know about and it's the teachers resistance to the Nazis during World War II in which hundreds of teachers, thousands, refused to take part in a new teachers organization that was being established by the Quisling public government. And because of that, they were arrested and schools were shut down. They were they faced huge repression, but they refused to give in. They were sent to concentration camps. They still refused to sign a pledge of loyalty to the government or to cooperate with it. And at the end, they were instrumental in defeating the spread of the Nazis. And, and the fact that Norwegians themselves often don't know about this case is, I think, quite sad, because I think if we're ignoring these cases of powerful nonviolent resistance, we're then sending the message to future generations that it's violence that has created progress, it's violence that has won us the rights we have, it's violence that has allowed us to defend ourselves and to gain independence, and then it's therefore violence that is the tool that is necessary in the future for the objectives that we care about. So it's, it's terrible, you know, that I mean, we need to recover this lost history. And it's very good that these days I'm, I'm seeing examples of historians that are trying to do that, that are, are trying to bring attention to these really important cases. So tell our listeners a bit about the kind of resources that you have at the Albert Einstein Institution. I mean, I know Gene Sharp has been writing about this for years, gathering examples, studies, building up an immense database. As a member of the public, if I want to get that information, where do I go? Well, yes, you're right. We do have an immense amount of information and knowledge that is on our website. That's www.aeinstein.org. We have posted most of Gene Sharp's writings online for free download in PDF format on our website, as well as the writings of other scholars on civil resistance or nonviolent resistance. So, uh, yeah, it's a great website for accessing the general knowledge about how nonviolent struggle works and how it might be applied for various situations and also has a number of case studies on nonviolent resistance in, in different historical struggles. There's also publications in more than 50 languages. So there's a lot of resources for many different people and they're accessed by diverse people and groups from all over the world. In fact, we've looked at the website stats and we found that there are people accessing our website from all but four countries in the world. So 
do they just read your information and then go on their way? Or is there some interaction with you and the staff there that helps convey that information, helps develop the kind of responses that they could undertake? There's really a wide variety of interactions that happen with our work. These are activists, they're academics and students and historians and policymakers and, and really diverse people and groups from all over the world that come to our website for different types of information and then access it in different ways. Some people are simply downloading material and then uh, not really otherwise being in touch with us. And, and then some people are inquiring about you know our resources or our services. They're also asking questions about the texts or inquiring about publication rights or translation rights for a material. So it's really a quite a wide variety of inquiries that we receive. Could you provide a little bit of information about Gene Sharp, what led him in the direction of this study? I mean, I did meet him, so I actually have some sense of that, but he had his own experiences that led him to this lifelong work. He's a scholar, but this isn't just about scholarly pursuits. That's right. Yeah, I think that Gene Sharp started, as many people do, looking at the world and finding that it has some very serious political problems and trying to figure out what role they can play and trying to address those. And I think as a young man, that's what he did. He was trying to play a part in alleviating some of the world's most serious issues, which at the time were very serious because it was the 1950s, you know, with racial segregation and atomic weapons and World War II and and all of that. But also it was the time period following the Indian independence movement. So I think that he began to study what Gandhi had done and began to study quite seriously and, and began as a pacifist and, and rejecting violence on moral grounds. And then as he was doing the research about the Indian independence movement and three distinct case studies in the Indian independence movement, he found something that he thought quite shocking, was, which was that people had acted together, not because of a single belief system, but because they felt for whatever reason that nonviolent action was more likely to achieve particular objectives. So they acted together in disciplined ways without all believing the same thing and all, you know, not from religious grounds, but on pragmatic grounds. And this for him was quite revolutionary. And I think it was revolutionary thinking for the time period. It still is quite, for many people, really outside their conception of nonviolent struggle and, and what it is and how it works. And so that was really big for him, and he began to study nonviolent resistance, and he found that there were these hundreds and hundreds of cases where people had used nonviolent action, and in spite of the fact that they often didn't know what they were doing, they had achieved important successes. You say, by the way, that he started out as a pacifist. Does that mean he became something other than a pacifist along the way? Would you believe that I'm not quite sure about the answer to that question? And I think we we should ask him himself. He, as I do, I think that some of that is not quite relevant in the sense that, you know, many people are very interested in, in what we personally believe. But I think that my qualifications come from, you know, trying to study nonviolent resistance and study the history. And I think that, you know, what I think or, or my opinions are less relevant than the historical facts, the evidence, and the lessons we can draw from that evidence. Actually, the part that I would add, though, is it is supremely important as far as in my perception, in my view of the world, 
what motivates a person and what sustains them in their work. Because even though this information is out there for anyone to grab, some people are motivated to gather this information and to use it and to try and transform the world for that. So that's why I ask about Gene. And of course, I want to know about you too, Jamila. What motivates you? Is it just because this was the best salary you could draw? <laughs> well, of course, at the root of this is a recognition that we would like to reduce and eliminate deadly conflict because of its destructiveness for society. Of course, that's what motivates us all. And also that we want to give people the tools to conduct struggles effectively for greater freedom. So that, of course, is the motivation that drives us all. Of course, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I think that you know this is what makes this work so attractive for so many people, is that it presents a powerful alternative to war and violence. And that if we want to see less violence in the world, that it's not enough just to denounce violence, because most of us agree that violence is harmful, but also many people justify it for you know, so-called good purposes, for necessary purposes. So in order to reduce violence in the world, we have to replace violence with a at least as powerful way to conduct struggle. One thing that's rather crazy is that we seem to almost blindly apply a completely different system of judgments, criteria for success on a violent versus a nonviolent solution of a problem. So when the question is nonviolence, and because people do get killed, hurt, injured, massacred sometimes in attempts to use nonviolent action, many people say, well, see, it doesn't work. But if millions of people die in World War II or World War I or Korean War or whatever, if very large numbers of people die in a war conflict, they don't call that a lack of success. They call that, well, that's just part of the process. Are people receptive to that reframing already when they come to you, or do you have to make it clear that they compare apples to apples? No, you've actually hit the nail on the head. This is a real problem and it's a continuing problem. I think that it's very important that people ask questions, that people really examine nonviolent resistance critically. We don't need to be passively accepting it because it involves millions of people at times. So we don't ask that, you know, people don't ask the tough questions. People absolutely should ask the tough questions. However, they should do it in a way that's constructive and useful and fair. And as you pointed out, the criteria by which we judge effectiveness and success is really not consistent among violent conflict and nonviolent conflict. So people expect, for example, nonviolent resistance. They think that if you're going to be nonviolent as the opposition, that the opponent is also going to be kind and gentle. And of course, unfortunately, that's not true. If you present a serious challenge to an opponent, most likely they're going to use the maximum violence that they can get away with or the maximum repression they can get away with. And on and on, I mean, people expect that nonviolent resistance should somehow produce utopias. And of course, when has violence ever done that? I mean, anytime people are demand political change and work to challenge oppressive opponents, there's going to be risks, there's going to be sacrifices. That's not for us to justify those. I would never do that. 
but people themselves do it for violence all the time. And people say, you know, we must sacrifice for this struggle. But then for some reason, when, you know, a nonviolent resistance movement faces repression, then they say, you know, well, violence was used against us. So we must retaliate using violence because that's, of course, the real power. And that's, I think, very unfortunate because that's the very moment where people must keep nonviolent discipline in order to prevent a shift to violence in which their opponent will most likely be superior. You know, I'm not at all sure how in your databanks how you have these things all organized, but I assume that not only would there be a description of the situation, the technique used, but I'm also assuming that there will be some measure for success. Did it achieve what it was trying to achieve? To what degree? I mean, you have to be able to measure these things to do a scholarly study of this. Can you walk us through an example, for instance, of objective, a method, and success, how it was measured, what the outcomes are? You know, Mark, the way we measure success in our case studies is the degree to which the objectives, the stated objectives of the movement were fulfilled in the course of the struggle. There are other researchers who look at these cases and measure effectiveness and success in a more sort of quantitative way. For example, How Civil Resistance Works that important publication by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, that book, perhaps you can look this up, I think it has more than 300 specific cases of violent resistance and nonviolent resistance. It compares violent resistance and nonviolent resistance in terms of effectiveness, in terms of whether the objectives for which the struggle was waged were achieved. And it finds that nonviolent resistance is actually twice as likely to achieve its objectives, something like 57% to something like 25%. So they will have specific kind of research methodology that measures it in the way that you've described. And that's a sort of innovation. I think in some ways it's sort of a different way to do this research. So what do you actually have recorded in your database, in your examples? What are people going to see when they get there? We have, for example, the 198 methods of nonviolent action. These are the specific examples of the so-called sort of nonviolent weapons that have been used historically. This is an entire volume that is the middle volume of a book called The Politics of Nonviolent Action. The 198 methods has really captured the imagination of people because it's the sort of specific methods that have been used historically and in what kind of situations have they been used and in what ways have they been effective. So these are many of the methods that we might think of when we think of nonviolent resistance, including the sort of public displays of dissatisfaction, you know, displaying flags and colors, prayer, you know, symbolic protest, demonstrations and posters and leaflets that sort of thing, communicating a particular idea. And then there's the methods of social non-cooperation, economic non-cooperation, so the different types of economic boycotts and strikes and political non-cooperation, on and on to what we consider the most powerful methods, which are the methods of nonviolent intervention. Again, as you just mentioned, there's 198 methods. My favorite one, by the way, is number 57, Lysistratic non-action. Not everybody knows about (laughs) Lysistrata, 
but you know, back in Greece, uh, I don't know, three, five hundred years uh, before the current era, as we call it, uh, it's a play written to say the women are fed up with their men going off to war, so they decide that they're not going to get any sex unless they stop doing war. And so the men very quickly capitulate. Don't you think that worldwide that would work pretty well? I've heard that before. I think there's actually modern cases where it's been used in Colombia and in Nigeria as well. Yeah, it always elicits a giggle from people. I think it is a powerful method, and I'm not really sure how it could be applied on a global scale. (laughs) (laughs) It will produce demands on both sides, but these are 198 classified different methods, and I think constantly looking for the new methods. If you look at attempts to use nonviolent action, say what happened in Egypt, do you go through and check off? Will they use seven and 28 and they use, how do these things get looked at? Yeah, I think probably there's people that are conducting research on various struggles that are ongoing and kind of monitoring the use of different methods and also the use of new methods that we have not recorded because obviously this is a technique that is not meant to be sort of somehow fossilized. It's something that is improved and refined every day by activists and by people using it and by academics who are learning about how it's being used and how it can be applied in new and improved ways. And also in response to repression by the opponents because opponents are also learning about how nonviolent resistance works in order to know how to understand it and and undermine it and uh, defeat it and use it for their own purposes. So this creates a very sort of dynamic technique which is changing all the time. And so we're really looking at the ways in which some of these methods are being used and some of the new ways in which they're being applied and also with the introduction of new technology and social media, you know, some of these old methods are being applied in new ways. And so that's all very interesting and exciting and, and, and really captures the creativity that, you know, that humans display in their acts of defiance and, and resistance. We're also looking at not just how the individual methods are being used, but also new ways of applying the technique in terms of strategically how are people planning struggles. And there's some really interesting things going on uh, also in the environmental movement. And so that's something we're looking at. Like, for example, how does nonviolent resistance work against different types of opponents? When your opponent is no longer a sort of centralized dictatorship, but maybe a corporations, maybe energy companies that are operating in your community, you know, how can you use civil resistance and civil disobedience in order to basically make life difficult for them so that perhaps they'll reconsider their behaviors and their actions? I'd love to hear some of the specifics, some of the examples examples of this kind of thing at work because it's invisible to most people. Most people, even if it happens to arrive in the news, they don't realize that this is civilian-based defense or this is nonviolent resistance or action. You've been executive director of the Albert Einstein Institution for a while now, and I know that Gene Sharp is there still helping and making a difference, feeding the process, but it's kind of lands in your lap. So what have you seen in your tenure? Well, I think that some of the most interesting examples of nonviolent resistance are being taken by the environmental movement. And there's a case which uh, there's actually quite a bit of information available online about this case that happened along the St. Lawrence River in Canada, where there was a community concerned with energy companies taking part in fracking operations in their area. They decided to, uh, you know, they used various methods in order to try to fight that. And 
those were not working. So they developed a campaign of nonviolent resistance in which they basically developed a capacity within the population to kind of, perhaps it was along the lines of threatening civil disobedience should these companies come to their area. And that that process, just by saying, we're here, we'd prefer you not to come here, and we will use peaceful however, very disruptive methods in order to disrupt your ability to make a profit here, in which case you might consider not coming here. And I think it worked. And it definitely worked for a certain period of time and it definitely lessened the number of companies that were willing to operate in their area because these companies are also concerned about their profits. So if communities are empowered and engaged to the point where they will disrupt their ability to make profits, then they're going to reconsider operating there. And so I think this is a kind of new method being used internationally by communities who are looking to their leadership and looking to their local institutions to kind of protect them from these companies. And they're finding that those leaders are not willing to act. And so they're going to have to take matters into their own hands, and they often do. And there's a lot of people working in such divergent ways. And it's beautiful to see all the ways we can do this without resorting to violence. I'm assuming that people like Gene Sharp and George Slakey our bosom buddies because they've both been working in the area for such a long time. The Earthquaker Action Team, they're one of the environmental groups that I've interviewed and found out how they've been successful in their first attempt to get rid of mountaintop removal in their first move toward it. And, you know, it's not like they finished off mountaintop removal, but they set a concrete goal and head toward that. That's, of course, quite a bit different than a country, Egypt, when they want to get rid of Mubarak that isn't a single group, single view or single objective. So things strike me as very different there. Are there other examples you can give me of where you feel like the nonviolent action that you're supporting with the Albert Einstein Institution, that it's taking roots or it's making good progress? Yeah, I think it's just a such a wide array of the uses of nonviolent action around the world, often not getting a lot of attention, but which are achieving very important successes. There's another case that happened uh, a few months ago in India in a town called Kodai Canal. And this is where there had been for many years a thermometer factory that was owned by Unilever. For, I don't know, almost 20 years, they had been dumping toxic mercury into the land and into the waterways and just really polluting the area. And eventually, through the actions of unions and Greenpeace, they forced the factory to close down, which it did. However, there were lots of people that continued to get sick and babies that were born with birth defects and children and older people that were handicapped. And Unilever refused to make any reparations or take responsibility for their pollution that they had done and to contribute to the health care of the families. So the people in the community tried for many years to get them to make reparations through the courts and through the justice system. So they had trial after trial but obviously the company had access to huge resources and those cases never went anywhere. I think this went on for more than a decade, this trying to make change through the legal system without success. And for many people, it seemed like the struggle was hopeless and they felt very forgotten. But then last year, I think it was August, there was a young woman, she was 27 years old, and she made a rap video. And she used the people in the town she did the rap video to the tune of, I don't know if you know Nicki Minaj's song called Anaconda. It was like quite a rap hit. <laughs> and 
The words were, you know, Cota Canal, that's the town, you know, won't step down until you make amends. You know, it was this message of defiance to the company. The song immediately went viral. It had hundreds of thousands, like almost a million views within a week. It was featured on the New York Times and in the Huffington Post. And even Nicki Minaj herself retweeted the video and hundreds and hundreds of tweets poured into the account of the, of the CEO of Unilever. And eventually they responded and they responded, you know, we're not sure what happened since then and, and to what extent they're actually going to follow through. But it's very clear that what this video did, and especially the international attention to it, because it was an international corporation that, you know, has a PR image to maintain, that it did bring a lot of pressure on the company and activated the sort of power capacity of people just through, just through music. We're speaking, folks, with Jamila Rakib. She is the executive director of an organization called the Albert Einstein Institution, founded by Jean Sharp. I was referred to Jamila via Nelia Sargent, who is the chair of the board of directors for the Albert Einstein Institution. On the web, they're aeinstein.org. And you'll find wealth of resources there. But they're just one of the programs we have here for Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. We're on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find more than ten and a half years of our programs. I often have talked to people who've referred to Gene Sharp and the kind of work that Jamila is talking about. So you go back over those ten years, you'll find many gold nuggets just waiting for your listening. Also on the site, there's a place to post comments, and we love two-way communication. When you visit, please post a comment, and there's also a place to donate, which is how this full-time work is supported. It's by your donations alone. It's not the corporations, and it's not government that's paying for this alternative view. But even more important than getting the view of Northern Spirit Radio out there is to make sure that we have the broadcast channels of your community radio stations. Community radio stations are so important in providing alternative news and music you get just nowhere else on the American airwaves. So please start by supporting them. Again, Jamila Rakib is here, Executive Director, Albert Einstein Institution, born, passed her first four years in Afghanistan, and then traveled elsewhere, eventually ending up with working with Gene Sharp for the Albert Einstein Institution. Now, we've talked about a few different examples. We haven't talked so much about your role in getting the information to people, and so I envisioned, you know, that there would be some kind of seminars or it's the books that you get out there or that you're doing direct training of some sort. Could you say what kind of resources the Albert Einstein Institution and particularly you, Jamila, provide to help people get stronger in their nonviolent action? Sure, Mark. Well, you know, a lot of what we provide in terms of the resources are is the written material, and it's the English language material, but also the translations. And the translations are, you know, quite difficult to do. They're done by mainly by volunteers and activists around the world or academics around the world who recognize the need for particular publications in their languages, but then it requires oversight from our office in order to make sure that they're done in a way that's, you know, consistent with the quality of the English language material and also that conveys the content accurately because this is politically sensitive stuff and we want to make sure that it's conveyed precisely and accurately and also that the terminology is accurate. So that's part of what we do is to assist groups that 
are trying to disseminate this work in their languages in order to make sure it continues to be high quality. So a lot of the work we do is, is in doing that and also in dealing with publishing houses and coming to agreements with them, making the work available in new formats, including in audio format for to be serialized on the radio or to be disseminated, you know, to, in order to avoid government surveillance. Sometimes audio format is easier. And besides that, of course, we're available as a resource to people who uh, want to access the material, but also who have questions. Now, generally, you know, the questions are at times people asking for specific advice. And of course, as I mentioned before, this is something we really emphasize is that we do not give specific advice and for a number of reasons. So the guidance we're giving people is usually in reference to specific topics or other case studies that might be useful for them, including case studies from their own history. Sometimes people have very little knowledge about nonviolent resistance, powerful struggles that have happened in their own regions. And so we call their attention to that because that can be very useful in learning what they themselves should do. But the topics that we are covering in our work are quite diverse, but really have to do with political power, how it should be understood, where does power come from in society, and what is the role of the individuals, why do people obey, and so a lot of this is is quite theoretical, but it's going to be quite applicable and very, uh, it's going to resonate with, with people living in authoritarian systems. And then we discuss the methods of nonviolent action. And as I mentioned, these are the 198 collected individual nonviolent weapons. So they're the symbolic methods and the methods of social non-cooperation, political non-cooperation, and economic non-cooperation, and nonviolent intervention. Then we have other very important topics, which are often not intuitive. I mean, these are things that really need to be studied, and they include for example, what are the elements in nonviolent strategy? You know, why is strategy important? What are the elements in developing that strategy? How to select specific weapons? How do you control communication? What's the role of unity and solidarity? You know, do you need perfect consensus before launching a movement? I mean, these are issues that are discussed. Also, the need for nonviolent discipline and why violence, even limited violence in a nonviolent struggle movement can really cause the loss of control of the movement, and on and on, including, you know, different structures of leadership, what has happened historically, or how have people approached the idea of leadership, and whether you need a charismatic leader, and of course we say no, and what are the different models that have been used from the most centralized and authoritarian structure down to the most decentralized, and on and on. So these are the kinds of topics that are discussed, and oftentimes people People are having to sort of reinvent the wheel each time when they're conducting struggle. And what we say is, you know, we don't have all the answers, but what we do have is a kind of overview of what others have done and what's worked and what hasn't worked and what you might consider for your situation. I assume you also have the data. I mean, you're probably drawing your data from every country of the world, but also there's the correlation or non-correlation with any kind of religious or other ethnic identity. I mean, perhaps the Russian people are more prone to use nonviolent action than people in Africa. I don't know. Is there that kind of correlation you can draw between ethnic groups or religions or areas of the world? 
Well, we find that nonviolent resistance is a very human phenomenon that has existed throughout the centuries and on every continent. And so we do not think it's culturally specific or specific to any religion or ideology, that in fact it doesn't depend on much of anything except for human capacity to be stubborn, and therefore stubbornness may be the most human trait of all. And that's why I'm so good about it. Oh, <laughs> it comes naturally to us, and that's the beauty of it. We don't have to learn it. In fact, children are masters of stubbornness, and so are animals. Gene Sharp says this all the time. He tells stories about how he learned the art of stubbornness from his dogs over the years. <laughs> They're going to make life difficult. I thought he'd learn it from sheep. I understand they're especially bad. I've heard that too, yes. They're wonderful. All, all animals are. So I think that it's, it's really interesting. You know, when, we, when we're speaking to different audiences, sometimes if you're speaking to the skeptics about nonviolent resistance, you'll find that people, sometimes in Western societies, they say this is an Eastern phenomenon. It's something that, you know, Gandhi did, and that was a unique case, and it, there's not much to learn from it, and it can't be done again. And then sometimes people in the East, if there is such a thing, but, you know, sometimes people in in, in various countries, they say, no, this is actually a Western phenomenon. Uh, (laughs) And, of course, it's neither, or both, perhaps. Yeah, I assume that there's some measure of it, but I also thought there might be a correlation, a a predisposition by culture for certain forms of nonviolent resistance. I don't think so, Mark. I have never seen anything that supports that. And in fact, I've seen quite the opposite. And, you know, in in some of the societies that are thought to be, you know, have a propensity for violence have actually, for specific cases, have actually been used very disciplined nonviolent resistance, not because they've not favored violence for any purpose in the past, or they may even have done so in the future, but for a particular situation, they have determined that nonviolent struggle has the best chances of delivering them success. So they've used it as as a pragmatic choice. Actually, my thoughts were, I live in an area of Wisconsin and over into Minnesota. If you've ever heard Pray Home Companion, you know the joking about Norwegians and other Scandinavians who settled this area. There's cultural norms about how one does things and what's polite, what's not polite. And I don't know if you've heard of Minnesota Nice. I thought that those kind of groups would have a propensity to use different kinds of nonviolent action. They'd be more comfortable with it culturally than other folks. Interesting. That might make a good research paper. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll have to go and get a PhD or something. Yeah. But one of the examples you mentioned earlier, the Bajah Khan, you know, I believe he was Muslim and a large number of his followers were Muslim. And most people today don't think of Muslims as being strong in nonviolent action. Although if you went to Syria and such, you would have found plenty who were working in that way. So there are misconceptions about what groups will or won't use. And it's, of course, important to dispel them, but I assume that people also have to look at these techniques and say, well, given what our populace is likely to respond to, this is the good strategy to follow. Yeah, maybe. I think that whether societies are violent or not, I don't think that we can make those types of generalizations, but I think in general what we can say is that humans have a capacity for flexibility and that they can reason through various courses of option and, and do that which is in their interest. So I think that nonviolent resistance has huge potential to be used in many different cases, in many different societies, regardless of any defining factor. You already mentioned one kind of nonviolent action that took place during World War II. 
most people in the U.S. assume that World War II is our good war, that there weren't a lot of options. You just had to go and shoot it out with the Nazis, that kind of thing. But there are any number of examples of powerful actions taken that actually mitigated and maybe if they had been used more widely would have actually led to a nonviolent success of World War II. Of course, if people don't join up with you, and that is a mindshare tendency in our society, you know, a gun is quicker and easier than using the other methods then you can't be successful. Can you suggest, can you mention some of the other things that happened during World War II or other wars the, in the totalitarian systems where people think that nonviolent action is useless? Yeah, I think a lot of people use the example of the Nazis in that facing an opponent that has such a high capacity and a willingness to use repression and violence and the tools of the state against citizens, then, then, you know, what are people to do? And of course, I don't know, you know, that's the answer. But we do know that there are examples where the Nazis were defeated in limited ways, where they were stopped, where they were slowed down, and where genocide was prevented for specific groups of people. Now, others will say that they'll explain those cases away. Like, you know, this is, there's a specific reason why this happened, and that couldn't be applied in any kind of larger way. And I think that's a sort of typical, uh, maybe not typical, but that's a, that's a sort of response that we've heard. I've always been impressed with the Rosenstrasse protests, which happened at the end of the war in Berlin. And it was during a campaign where the last of the, the Jews of Berlin were being arrested. And the last of the Jews happened to be Jewish men that were married to German women. And there were nearly 2,000 of them. And they were considered to be, you know, sort of special cases. And that's why they were kind of exempt until the end of the war. So these men were arrested. And there's just a remarkable case where their wives demonstrated outside of the Gestapo, you know, where they were being held. And they did for days, I think. And eventually, these men were released. And they were released not because the Nazis suddenly became kind and gentle, but because they actually really feared the consequences uh, of using violence, you know, in this specific case. So I think it just points to possibilities, and it points to insights that really should be explored and what actually took place and how was this possible and what might we learn from that in order to slow down or stop their attempts at genocide or extreme violence in the future. I learned long ago that you're supposed to define your terms first. We're talking about nonviolent action, nonviolent resistance, civil resistance. What are the key elements of the kind of efforts that you're dealing with at the Albert Einstein Institution? If we were defining what this is about, what is the key? Well, I'm really glad that you're asking or that, that we're talking about this, Mark, because I think that the term is really widely misunderstood. And a lot of times we find ourselves or, or people talk about it without really being clear on what it is. And actually, they often associate it with related phenomenon. So it's very good for us to talk about what it is and what it's not. Nonviolent action is not inaction. It's not passivity. It's not passivism. It's not the rejection of violence on moral grounds. It's a technique. It's a technique of conducting resistance of protest without using physical violence. And it has specific requirements and uh, dynamics. It's made up of what we call acts of omission. So that is 
that people taking part in nonviolent struggle, they refuse to do certain things that are required, or acts of commission, which is that they do things that are forbidden. And they do that as part of a strategy for particular political objectives that is nonviolent action. One of the things I remember Gene Sharp talking about back in mid-1980s, again, this is the this is before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So the Soviet Union and the United States and allies, there is the Cold War going on. And so the Reagan response to that is what we need is more weapons. At that time, Gene was talking about something called civilian-based defense. Is that still a major chapter in your books? Yes, definitely. Civilian-based defense is a very important application of nonviolent resistance to provide for a country or a society's defense needs. So as a component of a defense policy, Civilian-Based Defense is a book that was published in, I believe, the late 80s, and we have just republished it just a few weeks ago. It is a very important new topic, especially now as around the world you have countries that are once again examining how they might incorporate certain types of nonviolent defense, civil resistance in their defense policies in order to deal with possible aggression. And so it's receiving new attention in the world today, including in Lithuania, which we've heard their Department of Defense has, I believe, around six months ago, released a manual on civil resistance, instructing its population to act, that they have authorization to act in times of a crisis, including if there's an invasion. And so it's called emergency preparedness, but it incorporates uh, instructions on what to do if, if the country is invaded. You know, so few people know about Estonia's singing revolution or the Ukraine's orange revolution or other such nonviolent efforts within the former USSR to work toward independence. There are so many resources that we're just ignorant of. While the political and media drumbeat is for more military and more war, so I'm deeply grateful for the enduring efforts of the Albert Einstein Institution's work to raise our consciousness of the less damaging and more effective nonviolent methods. Folks, we've been speaking with Jamila Rakib, Executive Director of the Albert Einstein Institution, website A. Einstein.org, linked, of course, on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Thanks to the chair of their board of directors, Nelia Sargent, for connecting me up with Jamila, and also to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and also to Gene Sharp and many other scholars and passionate workers for peace, but especially to you, Jamila, for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. So thank you for your time and for the opportunity. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with 